Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I'm going to read from a book titled The Life of Captain Richard F. Burton by his wife, Isabel Burton. It was put together in two volumes, and Isabel Burton was the wife of Richard Burton, who died in 1890. He's born in 1821, and just somebody who come to my attention. Uh, one of the things Alistair Crowley did is dedicate his autobiography in part to Richard Francis Burton, who he called the perfect pioneer of spiritual and physical adventure. Uh, Richard Burton, really for the 19th century, was an incredible polymath and somebody who spoke many languages. I think he spoke 40 different languages. He was educated at Oxford before he got kicked out and traveled all over. He's really an ethnographer and travel, travel logist and study student of human behavior. Um, later on in his life, he worked as British consul in Brazil, Damascus, Italy, Equatorial Guinea. So he had he was well traveled, and uh, he had had this trip. I mean, he wrote really a book that made him mostly famous was a book he wrote about his pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina in disguise. The title of that book is a personal narrative of a pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina by Richard F. Burton. It's published in 1874 in three volumes. It's very detailed and very lengthy. So one of the reasons why I'm reading this book about from Isabel is his time there is uh, smaller. It's a smaller amount, but it's also excerpted in her book. So you'll I'll read through some of the passages that he had. Uh, he went in much greater detail in his book, and maybe I'll read from that at a later date, but it's very thorough, and um, it would take a long time to read through that. But Isabel was his wife. He died in 1890 in Trieste, and she had all of his papers, <clears throat> so she talked about his life in this biography. And uh, so I will read from chapter, it'll be volume one, chapter eight and nine, covering Richard Burton's travels to Mecca and Medina and also Eastern Africa and some of his adventures there and his controversies. It starts off really in when she had met Richard Burton in France and then his trip. So uh, I will start here. Chapter seven, chapter eight on return from India. When Richard came home, he first ran down full of joy to visit all his relations and friends. He then went to Oxford with half a mind to take his degree. He was between 28 and 29 years of age. In 1850, he went back to France and devoted himself to fencing. To this day, the Burton Undu, is, and notably the manchette, the upper word slash disabling the sword arm and saving life in affairs of honor, earned him his brevet de point for the excellence of his swordsmanship, and he became a maitre d'armes. Indeed, as horseman, swordsman, and marksman, no soldier of his day surpassed him and very few equaled him. His family, that is his father, mother, and sister with her two children, her husband's, her husband being in India, and his brother Edward in the 37th Regiment, Queens, went to Boulogne, like all the rest of us, for change, quiet, and economy, and there he joined them. We did exactly the same, the object being to put me and my sisters into the Sacre Cour to learn French. Boulogne in those days was a very different town to what it is now. It was the home of the stranger who had done something wrong. The natives were of the usual merchant or rich bourgeoisie class. There was a sprinkling of the local noblesse in the hot ville. The gem of the natives in the lower class were the poissards, 
who hold themselves entirely distinct from the town are crossed between Spanish and Flemish. And in those days were headed by a handsome queen called Caroline, long since dead. The English colony was very large. The creme who did not mix with the general smart people were the Seymours, Dundases, Chichesters, Jerninghams, Beddingfields, Cluffords, Molino Seals, and ourselves. Maybe I've forgotten many others. The rest of the colony, instead of living like the colonies that Richard described at Tours, used to walk a great deal up and down the Grand Rue, which was the fashionable lounge, the Rue de la Coue, the Quai, and the Pier. The men were handsome and smart and beautifully dressed with generally an immense amount of white shirt front as in the park and the girls were pretty and well dressed. So were the young married women in those days. The establishment was a sort of casino where everybody passed their evening except the creme. They had music, dancing, cards, old ladies knitting and refreshments. And it was the hotbed like a club of all the gossip and flirtation with an occasional roaring scandal. The hardship of my life and that of my sisters was that our mother would never let us set food foot inside of it, which was naturally the only thing we longed to do, so that we had awfully dull, slow lives. Here Richard brought out his Goa, his two books on Sind, and his falconry, and prepared a book that came out in 1853, titled A Complete System of Bayonet Exercise, of which, I regret to say, the only copy I possessed has now been lost with a manuscript at David Bogues. People were now beginning to say that Burton was an awfully clever young fellow, a man of great mark, in fact, the coming man. Well, whilst I am speaking of that system of bayonet exercise, I may say that it was, as all he did, undervalued at the time. But still, it has long been one, the one used by the horse guards. Colonel Sykes, who was Richard's friend, sent for him and sharply rebuked him with printing a book that would do far more harm than good. It was thought that bayonet exercise would make the men unsteady in the ranks. The importance of bayonet exercise was recognized everywhere except England. Richard detected our weak point in military system, and he knew that it would be the British soldier's forte when properly used. Richard was not in the ring, but when that was proved, his pamphlet was taken down from the dusty pigeonhole, and a few modifications, not improvements, were added, so as to enable a just and enlightened war office, not to send him a word of thanks, a compliment, an expression of official recognition, which was all his soul craved for, but a huge letter from the treasury with a seal the size of a baby's fist, the gracious permission to draw upon the treasury for the sum of one shilling. Richard always appreci appreciated humor. He went to the war office at once, was sent to half a dozen different rooms, and to the intense astonishment of all the clerks, after three quarters of an hour's very hard work, he drew his shilling, and instead of framing it, he gave it to the first hungry beggar that he saw as soon as he came out of the war office. Lord love you, sir, said the beggar. No, my man, I don't exactly expect him to do that but I dare say you want a drink. He did not lead the life that was led by the general colony at Boulogne. He had a little set of men friends, knew some of the French, had a great many flirtations, one very serious one. He passed his days in literature and fencing. At home, he was most domestic. His devotion to his parents, especially to his sick mother, was beautiful. My sisters and I were kept at French all day, music and other studies, but were frequently turned into the ramparts, which would give one a mile's walk round to do our reading. Then we had a turn down the Grand Rue, the Rue de la Coue, the Quai, and the Pier at the fashionable hour for a treat, or else we were taking, taking a long country walk or a long row up the river lane to the, in the summertime where, where we occasionally saw a guignette. But we were religiously marched home at half past eight to supper in bed, and thus one of the creme gave a dull tea party. One day when we were on the ramparts, the vision of my awakening brain came towards us. 
five feet. He was five feet eleven inches in height, very broad, thin, and muscular. He had very dark hair, black, clearly defined, sagacious eyebrows, a brown, weather beaten complexion, straight Arab features, a determined looking mouth and chin, nearly covered by an enormous black mustache. I have since heard a clever friend say that he had the brow of a god, the jaw of the devil. But the most remarkable part of his appearance was two large black flashing eyes with long lashes that pierced you through and through. He had a fierce, proud, melancholy expression. And when he smiled, he smiled as though it hurt him and looked with impatient contempt at things generally. He was dressed in a black, short, shaggy coat and shouldered a short, thick stick as if he were on guard. He looked at me as though he read me through and through in a moment and started a little. I was completely magnetized, and when we had got a little distance away, I turned to my sister and whispered to her, that man will marry me. The next day he was there again, and he followed us and chalked up. May I speak to you? Leaving the chalk on the wall, so I took up the chalk and wrote back, no, mother will be angry. And mother found it and was angry. And after that, we were stricter prisoners than ever. However, destiny is stronger than custom. A mother and a pretty daughter came to Boulogne, who happened to be a cousin of my father's. They joined the majority in the society sense, and one day we were allowed to walk on the ramparts with them. There I met Richard, who, agony, was flirting with the daughter. We were formally introduced, and the name was made me start. I will say why later. I did not try to attract his attention, but whenever he came to the usual promenade, I would invent any excuse that came to take another turn to watch him as if he was not looking. If I could catch the sound of his deep voice, it seemed to me so soft and sweet that I remained spellbound as when I hear gypsy music. I never lost an opportunity of seeing him when I could not be seen, and as I used to turn red and pale, hot and cold, dizzy and faint, sick and trembling, and my knees used to nearly give way under me, my mother sent for the doctor to complain that my digestion was out of order and that I got migraines in the street, and he prescribed me a pill which I put in the fire. All the girls will sympathize with me, I was struck with the shaft of destiny, but I had no hopes, being nothing but an ugly schoolgirl, of taking the wind out of the sails of the dashing creature with whom he was carrying on a very serious flirtation. In early days, Richard had not got into a rather strong flirtation with a very handsome and very fast girl who had a vulgar middle-class sort of mother. One day he was rather alarmed at getting a polite but somewhat imperious note from the mother asking him to call upon her. He obeyed, but he took with him his friend Dr. Steinhauser, a charming man who looked as if his face was carved out of wood. After the preliminaries of a rather formal reception in a very prim-looking drawing room, the lady began looking severely at him. Quote, I sent for you, Captain Burton, because I think that my duty is to ask what your intentions are with regard to my daughter, unquote. Richard put on his most infantile face of perplexity and, as he said, quote, your duty, madam, Unquote. And then, as if he was trying to recall things, and after a while, suddenly seizing the facts of the case, he got up and said, Alas, madam, strictly dishonorable, unquote. And shaking his head as if he was going to burst into tears at his own iniquities, he said, I regret to say, strictly dishonorable, and bowed himself out with Dr. Steinhauser, who never moved a muscle of his face. Richard had never done the young lady a scrap of harm, beyond talking to her a little more than the others, because she was so awfully jolly. But the next time he met her, he said, quote, look here, young woman, if I talk to you, you must arrange that I do not have mama's duty flung at my head anymore, unquote. The old fool, said the girl, how like her. The only luxury I indulged in was a sort of a short but heartfelt prayer for him every morning. 
I read all his books and was seriously struck as before by the name when I came to the Jats and Sindh, but this I will explain later on. My cousin asked him to write something for me, which I used to wear next to my heart. One night an exception was made to our dull rule of life. My cousins gave a tea party and dance, and the great majority flocked in, and there was Richard, like a star among rushlights. That was a night of nights. He waltzed with me once and spoke to me several times, and I kept my sash where he put his arm around my waist to waltz and my gloves. I never wore them again. I did not know it then, but the little cherub who sits upon sits aloft is not only occupied in taking care of poor Jack, for I came in also for a share of it. Mecca. Whilst leading this sort of life on a long furlough, Richard determined to carry out a project he had long had in his head to study thoroughly the inner life of the Moslem. He had long felt within himself the qualifications, both mental and physical, which are needed for the exploration of dangerous regions, impossible of access, and of disguises difficult to sustain. His career as a dervish in Sindh greatly helped him. His mind was both practical and imaginative. He set himself to imagine and note down every contingency that might arise, and one by one he studied each separate thing until he was a master of it. As a small sample, he apprenticed, apprenticed himself to a blacksmith. He learned to make horseshoes and chew his horse. To accomplish a journey to Mecca and Medina quite safely in those days, 1853, was almost an impossibility for the discovery that he was not a Muslim would have been avenged by a hundred kanjars. It meant living with his life in his hand and amongst the strangest and wildest companions, adopting their unfamiliar manners and living for perhaps nine months in the hottest and most unhealthy climate upon repulsive food, complete and absolute isolation from all that makes life tolerable, from all civilization, from all his natural habits, the brain at high tension, never to depart from the role he had adopted. He obtained a year's leave on purpose, purpose and left London as a Persian, for during the time he had to assume and sustain several Oriental characters. Captain Grindley, who was in the, on the secret, traveled to Southampton and Alexandria as his English interpreter. John Thurburn, who curiously to say was also the host of Burkhart till he died, and was buried in Cairo, received Richard at Alexandria. He and his son-in-law, John Larking of the Furs Lee Kent, were the only persons throughout the perilous expedition who knew of his secret. He went to Cairo as a dervish, and he lived there as a native till, as told me. He actually believed himself to be what he represented himself to be, and then he felt he was safe, and he practiced on his own country people the finding out that he was unrecognizable. He had wished to cross the whole length of Arabia, but the Russian war had caused disturbances, which might have delayed him over his year's leave. In those days, it was almost impossible to visit the holy city as one of the faithful. First, there was the pilgrim ship to embark on. Then there were long desert caravan marches with their privations and their dangers. And then there, then there was the holy shrine, the Kaaba, to be visited, and all the ceremonies to be gone through, like a Roman Catholic Holy Week at Rome. Burkhardt, the Swiss traveler, did get in, but he could never see the Kaaba. And he confessed afterwards that he was so nervous that he was unable to take notes and unable to write or sketch for fear of being detected. Whereas Richard was sketching and writing in his white burnous the whole time he was prostrating and kissing the holy stone. He did not go in mockery, but reverentially. He had brought his brain to believe himself one of them. Europeans, converted Muslims have of late gone there, but they have been received with the utmost civility, consistent with coldness, have been admitted to outward friendship and have but have been carefully kept out of what they most wish to know and see, 
so that Richard was thus the only European who had beheld the inner and religious life of the Moslems as one of themselves. Amongst the various Oriental characters that Richard assumed, the one that suited best was half Arab, half Iranian, such as throng the northern shores of the Persian Gulf. With long hair falling on his shoulders, long beard, face and hands, arms and legs browned and stained with a thin coat of henna, oriental dress, spear in hand, and pistols in belt, Richard became Mizra Abdullah al-Bershiri. Here he commenced his most adventurous and romantic life, explored from north to south, from east to west, mixed with all sorts of people and tribes without betraying himself in manners, customs, or speech, when death must often have ensued, had he created either dislike or suspicion. I here give a slight sketch from his private notes, and for fuller details, refer the reader to his pilgrimage to Mecca and El Medina, three volumes, with colored illustrations published in 1855, which made a great sensation. Although he has been the author of some 80 books and pamphlets, I think that this original edition of three volumes is the one that his name should live by, and it will be the first of the Uniform Library with the Meccan Press. The Uniform Library means a reproduction of all his hitherto published works, and eventually his unpublished ones, so that the world may lose nothing of what he has ever written. As I have said, on the night of the 3rd, April 1853, a Persian Mirza, accompanied by an English interpreter, Captain, Captain Henry Grindley of the Bengal Cavalry, left London for Southampton and embarked on the P&O steamer Bengal. The voyage was profitable but tedious. Richard passed it in resuming his oriental character with such success that when he landed at Alexandria, he was recognized and blessed as a true Muslim by the native population. John Thurburn and his son-in-law, John Larking, received him at their villa on Mamudia Canal, but he was lodged in an outhouse, the better to deceive, deceive the servants. Here he practiced the Quran and prayer and all the ceremonies of the faith with a neighboring sheikh. He also became a hakim, or doctor, and called himself Sheikh Abdullah, preparing to be a dervish. The dervish is a chartered vagabond. Nobody asks why he comes, where he goes. He may go on foot or on horseback or alone or with a large retinue. And he is as much respected without arms as though he were armed to the teeth. I only wanted, he said, a little knowledge of medicine, which I had, moderate skill in magic, a studious reputation, and enough to keep me from starving. He provided himself with a few necessaries for the journey. When he had to leave Alexandria, he wrote, quote, not without a feeling of regret, I left my little room among the white myrtle blossoms and rosy oleander flowers with the almond scent. I kissed with humble ostentation my good host's hand in the presence of his servants. I bade adieu to my patients, who now amounted to about 50, shaking hands with all meekly and with religious equality of attention, and mounted in a trap, which looked like a cross between a wheelbarrow and a dog cart, drawn by a kicking, jibbing, and biting mule, I set out for the steamer, the little asthmatic. The journey from Alexandria to Cairo lasted three days and nights. We saw nothing but muddy water, dusty banks, sand, mist, milky sky, glaring sun, breezes like the blasts of a furnace, and the only variation was that the steamer grounded four or five times a day, and I passed my time telling my beads with a huge rosary. I was a deck passenger. The sun burnt us all day, and the night dews were raw and thick. Our diet was gar bread and garlic, moistened with muddy water from the canal. At Cairo, I went to a caravansary. Here I became a Pathan. I was born in India of Afghan parents who had settled there, and I was educated at Rangoon and sent out, as is often the custom, to wander. 
I knew all the languages that I required to pass me, Persian, Hindustani, and Arabic. It is customary at the shop on the camel in the mosque to ask, what is thy name? Whence comest thou? And you must be prepared. I had to do the fast of the Ramazan, which is far stricter than the Catholics Lent. And in Cairo, I studied the Muslim faith in every detail. I had great difficulty in getting a passport without betraying myself, but the chief of the Afghan college at the Azhar Mosque contrived it for me. I hired a couple of camels and put my Meccan boy and baggage on one, and I took the other. I had an 84-mile ride across in midsummer on a bad wooden saddle in a, on a bad dromedary across the Suez Desert. Above, though a sky terrible in its stainless beauty and the splendors of a pitiless, blinding glare, the simoom caresses you like a lion with flaming breath. Around lie drifted sand heaps upon which each puff of wind leaves its trace in solid waves, frayed rocks, the very skeletons of mountains, and hard, unbroken plains, over which he rides, he who rides is spurred by the idea that the bursting of a water skin or the pricking of a camel's hoof would be a certain death of torture, a haggard land infested with wild beasts and wilder men, a region whose very fountains murmur the warning words, drinking away. In the desert, even more than upon the ocean, there is the present death, and this sense of danger, never absent, invests the scene of travel with a peculiar interest. Let the traveler who suspects exaggeration leave the Suez Road and gallop northwards over the sands for an hour or two. In the drear silence, the solitude, and the fantastic desolation of the place, he will feel what the desert may be. Then the oases and little land, lines of fertility, how soft and how beautiful, even though the Wadi El Ward or Vale of Flowers be the name of some stern flat in which a handful of wild shrubs blossom while struggling through a cold season's ephemeral existence. In such circumstances, the mind is influenced through the body. Though your mouth glows and your skin is parched, yet you feel no languor, the effect of human heat. Your lungs are lightened and your sight brightens. Your memory recovers its tone and your spirits become exuberant. Your fancy and imagination are powerfully aroused. And the wildness and sublimity of the scenes around you stir up all the energies of your soul, whether for exertion, danger, or strife. Your morale improves. You become frank and cordial, hospitable and single-minded. The hypocritical politeness and the slavery of civilization are left behind you in the city. Your senses are quickened. They require no stimulants but air and exercise. And the desert spirituous, spirituous liquors excite only disgust. There is a keen enjoyment in mere animal existence. The sharp appetite disposes of the most indigestible food. The sand is softer than a bed of down, and the purity of the air suddenly puts to flight a dire cohort of diseases. Here nature returns to man, however unworthily he has treated her. And believe me, once your tastes have conformed to the tranquility of such travel, you will suffer real pain in returning to the turmoil of civilization. You will anticipate the bustle and confusion of artificial life, its luxuries and its false pleasures with repugnance. Depressed in spirits, you will for a time after your return feel incapable of mental or bodily exertion. The air of the cities will suffocate you, and the careworn and cadaverous countenances of citizens will haunt you like a vision of judgment. I was nearly undone by Muhammad, my Meccan boy, finding my sextant among my clothes. And it was only by Umar Effendi, having read a letter of mine to Haji Wali that very morning on theology, that he was able to certify that I was thoroughly orthodox. When I started, my intention had been to cross all but the unknown Arabian Peninsula and to map it out, either from El Medina to Mascot or from Mecca to Makala on the Indian Ocean. I wanted to open a market for horses between Arabia and central India and go through the Ruba El Khali or the empty abode, 
the great wilderness on our maps to learn of the hydro hydrography of the Hajaz and the ethnographical details of this race of Arabs. I should have been very much at sea without my sextant. I managed to secrete a pocket compass. The journey would have been 15 or 1600 miles and have occupied at least 10 months longer than my leave. The quarreling of the tribes prevented my carrying it out. I had arranged with the Beni Harb, the Bedouin tribe, to join them after the pilgrimage like a true Bedouin, but it meant all this above-mentioned work. I found it useless to be killed in a petty tribe quarrel, perhaps about a mare, and once I joined them, it would have been a point of honor to aid in all their quarrels and raids. At Suez, we embarked on, the, on a sambuk, an open boat of about 50 tons. She had no means of reefing, no compass, no log, no sounding line, no chart. 97 pilgrims, 15 women and children came on deck. They were all barefoot, bareheaded, dirty, ferocious, and armed. The distance was doubled by detours. It would have been 600 miles in a straight line. Even the hardened Arabs and Africans suffered most severely. After 12 days of purgatory, I sprang ashore at Yambu. And traveling a fortnight in this pilgrim boat gave me the fullest possible knowledge of the inner life of El Islam. However, the heat of the sun, the heavy night dews, and the constant washing of the waves over me had so affected one of my, my feet that I could hardly put it to the ground. Yambu is the port of El Medina, as Jeddah is that of Mecca. The people are a good type, healthy, proud, and manly, and they have considerable trade. Here I arranged for camels, and our caravan hired an escort of irregular cavalry. Very necessary, for as the tribes were out, we had to fight every day. They did not want to start till the tribes had finished fighting, but I was resolved, and we went. Here I brought a shugduff, or litter, and seven days' provisions for the journey, and here also I became an Arab to avoid paying the capitation tax, the jizya. We eventually arrived at El Hamra, the red village, but in a short while, the caravan arrived from Mecca, and in about four hours, we joined it and went on our way. That evening, we were attacked by Badawi, and we had fighting pretty nearly the whole way. We lost 12 men, camels, and other beasts of burden. The Badawi looted the baggage and ate the camels. One morning, El Medina was in sight. We were jaded and hungry, and we gloried in the gardens and orchard, orchards about the town. I was met at El Medina by Sheikh Hamid, who received me into his family as one of the faithful, and where I led a quiet, peaceful, and pleasant life during leisure hours. But of course, the pilgrimage being my object, I had a host of shrines to visit, ceremonies to perform, prayers to recite, besides the usual prayers five times a day. For it must be remembered that El Medina contains the tomb of Muhammad. For a description, see Burton's Mecca and El Medina. The Damascus caravan was to start on the 27th Zul Qada, or 1st of September. I had intended to stay at El Medina till the last moment and to accompany the Kafilat El Tayara, or the flying caravan, which usually leaves on the second Zul Hijah, two days after that of Damascus. Suddenly arose the rumor that there would be no Tayara and that all pilgrims must proceed with the Damascus caravan or await the rock. The Sheriff Zaid Sa'ad, the robber's only friend, paid Sa'ad an unsuccessful visit. Sa'ad demanded back his shakeship in return for safe conduct through his country. Otherwise, said he, I will cut the throat of every hen that ventures into the passes. The Sheriff Zaid returned to El Medina on the 25th Zul Qada, or the 30th of August. Early on the morning of the next day, Sheikh Hamid returned hurriedly from the bazaar, exclaiming, You must make ready at once, Effendi. There will be no tayara. All hajis start tomorrow. Allah will make it easy to you. Have you your water skins in order? You are to travel down the Darb al-Sharki, where you will not see water for three days. 
Poor Hamid looked horror-struck as he concluded this fearful announcement, which filled me with joy. Burkhardt had visited and described the Darb el-Sultani, the high or royal road along the coast, but no European had as yet traveled down Harun el-Rashid's and the Lady Zubadiah celebrated route through the Nejd Desert. Here was my chance. Whenever he was ineffably disgusted, I consoled him with singing the celebrated song, Mesuna, the beautiful Bedouin wife of the Caliph Muwaya. Richard was immensely fond of this little song, and the Bedouin screams with joy when he hears it. Quote, Oh, take these purple robes away and give back my cloak of camel's hair and bear me from this towering pile to where the black tents flap in the air. The camel's colt with faltering tread, the dog that bays at all but me, delight me more than ambling mules than every art of minstrelsy. And any cousin poor but free might take me fatted ass from thee. The old man was delighted, clapped my shoulder and exclaimed, Verily, O father of mustachios, I will show thee the black tents of my tribe this year. So after staying at Medina about six weeks, I set out with the Damascus caravan down the Darb el-Sharki under the care of a very venerable Bedouin who nicknamed me Abu Shuwari, meaning father of mustachios, mine being very large. I found myself standing opposite the Egyptian gate of El Medina, surrounded by my friends, those friends of a day who crossed the phantasmagoria of one's life. There were affectionate embraces and parting mementos. The camels were mounted, and I and the boy Muhammad in the litter, litter or shugduf, and Sheikh Noor in his cot. The train of camels with the caravan wended its way slowly in a direction from north to northeast, gradually exchanging to eastward. After an hour's travel, the caravan halted to turn and take farewell of the holy city. We dismounted the, to gaze at the venerable minarets and the green dome which covers the tomb of the prophet. The heat was dreadful, the climate dangerous, and the beasts died in numbers. Fresh carcasses strewed our way, and we were covered with foul vultures. The caravan was most picturesque. We traveled principally at night, but the camels had to perform the work of goats and step from block to block of basalt like mountaineers which being unnatural to them, they kept up a continual piteous moan. This imum and pillars of sand continually threw them over. Water is the great trouble of a caravan journey, and the only remedy is to be patient and not to talk. The first two hours gives you the mastery, but if you drink, you cannot stop. 47 miles before we reached Mecca at El Zariba, we had to perform the ceremony of the El Iram, meaning to assume the pilgrim garb. The barber shaved us, trimmed our mustachios, we bathed and perfumed. Then we put on two new cotton cloths, each six foot long by three and a half broad. It is white with narrow red stripes and fringe and worn something as you wear it in the baths. Our heads and feet, right shoulder and arm are exposed. We had another fight before we got to Mecca and a splendid camel in front of me was shot through the heart. Our Sheriff Zaid was an Arab chieftain of the purest blood and very brave. He took two or 300 men and charged them. However, they shot many of our dromedaries and camels, and boxes and baggage strewed the place. And when we were gone, the Badawi would come back, loot the baggage, and eat the camels. On Saturday, the 10th of September, at one in the morning, there was great excitement in the caravan and loud cries of Mecca, Mecca, oh, the sanctuary, the sanctuary. All burst into loud praises, and many wept. We reached it next morning after 10 days and nights from El Medina. I became the guest of the boy Muhammad in the house of his mother. First, I did the circambulation of the haram. Early next morning, I was admitted to the house of our Lord, and we went to the holy well Zamzam, the holy water of Mecca, and then the Kaaba, Kaaba, in which is inserted the famous black stone where they say a prayer for the unity of Allah. 
Then I performed the seven circuits around the Kaaba called the Tawaf. I then managed to have a way pushed for me through the immense crowd to kiss it. While kissing it and rubbing hands and forehead upon it, I narrowly observed it and came away persuaded that it is an aerolite. It is curious that almost all agree upon one point, namely that the stone is volcanic. Ali Bey calls it meteorologically a block of volcanic basalt whose circumference is sprinkled with little crystals pointed and straw-like with roams of tile red felspath upon a dark ground like velvet or charcoal, except one of its protuberances, which is reddish. It is also described as a lava containing several small extraneous particles of a whitish and of a yellowish, uh, yellowish substance. All this time, the pilgrims had scorched feet and burning heads as they were always uncovered. I was much impressed with the strength and steadfastness of the Mohammedan religion. It was so touching to see them. One of them was clinging to the curtain and sobbing as though his heart would break. At night, I and Sheikh Noor and boy Muhammad issued forth with the lantern and praying carpet. The moon now approaching the full tipped brow of Abu Kaaba and lit up the spectacle with a more, a more solemn light. In the midst stood the huge beer-like erection, quote, black as the wings, which some spirit of ill or a sepulcher, sepulcher flings, unquote. Except where the moonbeams streaked it like jets of silver falling upon the darkest marble. It formed the point of rest for the eye. The little pagoda-like buildings and domes around it, with all their gilding and framework, faded to the sight. One object, unique in appearance, stood in view. The temple of the one Allah, the God of Abraham, of Ishmael, and of their posterity. Sublime it was, and expressing by all the eloquence of fancy and grandeur of one of the one idea which vitalized al-Islam and the strength and steadfastness of its votaries. One thing I remarked and think worthy of notice is that ever since Noah's dove, every religion seems to consider the pigeon a sacred bird. For example, every mosque swarms with pigeons. St. Mark's at Venice, and the same exists in most Italian marketplaces. The Hindu pandits in the old Assyrian Empire also have them, whilst Catholics make it the emblem of the Holy Ghost. The day before I went to Arafat, I spent the night in the mosque, and I saw many strange sights. One was a Negro possessed by the devil. There, too, he prayed by the grave of Ishmael. After this, we set out for Arafat, where is the tomb of Adam. I have seen two since, one at Jerusalem and one in the mountains behind Damascus. It was a very weary journal, journey. And with the sun raining fire on our heads and feet, we suffered tortures. The camels threw themselves on the ground, and I myself saw five men fall out and die. On the mount, there were numerous consecrated shrines to see, and we had to listen to an immensely long sermon. On the great festival day, we stoned the devil, each man with seven stones washed in seven waters. And we said while throwing each stone, quote, in the name of Allah, and Allah is almighty, I do this in hatred of the devil and to his shame, unquote. There was then an immense slaughter of victims, five or six thousand, which slaughter, with the intense heat, swarms of flies, and the whole space reeking with blood, produces the most noisome vapors, and probably is the birthplace of that cholera and smallpox, which generally devastate the world after the Hajj. Now we were allowed to doff the pilgrim's garb. We all went to barber's booths, where we were shaved, had our beards trimmed, and our nails cut, saying prayers the while. And though we had no clothes, we might put our clothes over our heads and wear our slippers, which were a, little, were a little protection from the heat. We might then twirl our mustachios, stroke our beards, and return to Mecca. At the last moment I was sent for, I thought, now something is going to happen to me. Now I am suspected. A crowd had gathered around the Kaaba and had no wish to stand bareheaded and barefooted in the midday September sun. 
At the cry of the open a path for the haji who would enter the house, the gazers made way. Two stout Meccans who stood below the door raised me in their arms, whilst a third drew me from above into the building. At the entrance, I was accosted by several officials, dark-looking Meccans, of whom the blackest and plainest was a youth from the Benu Sheba family, the true blood of the El Hejaz. He held in his hand the huge silver gilt padlock of the Kaaba, and presently, taking his seat upon a wooden press in the left corner of the hall, he officially inquired my name, nation, and other particulars. The replies were satisfactory, and the boy Muhammad was authoritatively ordered to conduct me around the building and to, to recite the prayers. I will not deny that, looking at the windowless walls, the officials at the door, and a crowd of excited fanatics below, I thought the and the place death, considering who I was. My feelings were the trapped rat description acknowledged by the immortal nephew of his uncle Perez. A blunder, a hasty action, a misjudged word, a prayer or bow, not strictly the right shibboleth, and my bones would have wit whitened the desert sand. This did not, however, prevent my carefully observing the scene during our long prayer and making a rough plan with my pencil upon my white iram. I returned home after this quite exhausted, performed an elaborate toilet, washing with henna and warm water to mitigate the pain the sun had caused my arms, shoulders and breast, head and feet, and put on my gayest clothes in honor of the festival. When the moon rose, there was a second stoning or lapidation to be performed, and then we strolled round the coffee houses. There was a little pilgrimage to undertake, which is in honor of Hagar seeking water for her son Ishmael. I now began to long to leave Mecca. I had done everything, seen everything. The heat was simply unendurable, and the little room where I could enjoy privacy for about six hours a day and jot down my notes was a perfect little oven. I slowly wended my way with a caravan to Jeddah with donkeys and Muhammad. I must say that the sight of the sea and the British flag was a pleasant tonic. I went to the British consulate, but the dragomans were not very civil to the unfortunate Afghan. So I was left kicking my heels at the great man's gate for a long time and heard somebody say, let that dirty inward wait. Long inured to patience, however, I did wait. And when the consul consented to see me, I presented him with a bit of paper as if it were a money order. On it was written, don't recognize me. I am Dick Burton, but I am not safe yet. Give me some money, naming the sum, which will be returned from London, and don't take any notice of me. He, however, frequently afterwards, when it was dark, sent for me, and once safe in his private rooms, showed me an abundance of hospitality. Necessity propelled me, compelled me, living with the Sheikh Noor in a room to myself, swept, sprinkled with water, and spread with mats. When I went out in my gay attire, I was generally mistaken for the Pasha of El Medina. After about 10 days' suspense, an English ship was sent by the Bombay Steam Navigation Company to convey pilgrims from El Hijaz to India. So one day, the Afghan disappeared, was supposed to have departed with the other dirty pilgrims, but in reality, he had got on board the Dwarka, an English ship with a first-class passage. He had emerged from his cabin after washing all his coloring off in the garb of an English gentleman, experienced the greatest kindness from the commander and officers, which he much needed being worn out with fatigue and the fatal fiery heat, and felt a great relief to his mind and body from being able to take his first complete rest in safety on board an English ship, but was so changed that the Turkish pilgrims who crowded the deck never recognized their late companion pilgrim. He ends his personal narrative of his so sojourn in El Hajaz thus, quote, I've been exposed to perils, I've escaped from them. I've traversed the sea and have not succumbed under the severest fatigues, but they with fatal fiery heat have worn me out and my heart is moved with emotions of gratitude that I have been permitted to affect the objects I had in view, unquote. An Irish mission missionary wrote of my husband after he was dead, quote, 
At Damascus, Burton began a new chapter, but he was not permitted to start with a clean page. Two incidents in his previous record foreshadowed him and hampered him in his efforts to make the best of his new consulate. He had offended the religious susceptibilities of both Mohammedans and Christians, and he found himself confronted with bitter, unreasoning prejudice. It is a question of how far Burton's oriental disguise concealed the Englishman in his pilgrimage to Mecca. I never conversed with a Mohammedan who had accompanied Burton on that journey, but I've seen Arabs who saw Palgrave on his way to Nejd, and his attempts to pose as a native were a constant source of amusement to all with whom he came in contact. Burton's oriental cast of face helped him when putting on the outward appearance of a Bedouin, but at no period of his life could he have passed for an Arab one second after he began to speak. On the pilgrimage to Mecca, Burton would be known as a devout British Mohammedan, just as easily as we recognize an Arab convert on a missionary platform, notwithstanding the efforts of the schoolmaster and the tailor to transform him into an Englishman. And as a perverted Englishman, Burton would be as welcome in the Hajj as a converted Arab would be in Exeter Hall, unquote. This is a ridiculous paragraph and spoils an otherwise splendid article. The writer speaks fairly good Syrian Christian Arabic with an Irish accent, but he is not conversant with the Arabic of scholars and high-class Mohammedans, and he does not know a word of Persian, Hindustani, Afghani, Turkish, or any other ten Oriental languages in which my husband passed his pilgrimages. I think native testimony is best. I can remember at a reception at Lady Salisbury's, the Persian ambassador, in a suite following Richard about the whole evening. And when I joked them about it, they said, quote, it is such an extraordinary thing to us to see any foreigner, especially an Englishman, speaking our language like ourselves. He might have never been out of Tehran. He even knows all the slang of the marketplace as well as we do, unquote. When he arrived in Damascus, his record was perfectly clean with the Mohammedans, and the only bitter, unreasoning prejudice was in the breast of Christian missionaries and Christian foreign office employees whose friends wanted the post. Burton and Palgrave were quite two different men, as silver and nickel. I know exactly the sort of Arabic Palgrave spoke. In the days that Richard went to Mecca, no converted Englishman would have been received as now. As to his Arabic, Abd el-Qadr told me, in mind, he was the highest cultivated and the most religious Muslim in Damascus, the only Sufi, I believe, that there were only two men in Damascus whose Arabic was worth, worth listening to. One was my husband, and the other was Sheikh Mijwal el-Mezrab, Lady Ellenborough's Bedouin husband. We may remember that at Jeddah his life was saved by being mistaken for the Pasha at el-Medina, and when he went for the departure of the Hajj at Damascus, he rode down the lines in frock, coat, and fez. He was accosted by more than one as the Pasha of the Hajj. And when the mistake was explained, he was told who he told them who he was. They only laughed and said, quote, Why don't you come along with us again to Mecca as you did before? Unquote. He was looked upon by all as a friend to the Moslem. He never profaned the sanctuaries of Mecca and Medina, and so far from being unpopular with guarded Haramayan or the holy cities of the Moslems. Even I am always admitted to the mosques with the women for his sake. There was no tinsel or gingerbread about anything Richard did. He was always true and real. In further support of the above quote, I quote two letters, one from Sporting Truth, quote, I had the pleasure of a slight acquaintance with the late Sir Richard Burton, familiarly known among his friends as Ruffian Dick. Not that there was anything offensive meant by that epithet. Indeed, in his case, it had a playfully complimentary significance. There were, in the old days, as many readers of Sporting Truth as will recollect, 
two familiar pugilists who went by the nicknames respectively of the old and young ruffian. The term referred purely to their style of fighting and was not intended to convey the idea that they were any less decent or civilized members of society than their neighbors. For much the same reason was Sir Richard Burton dubbed, rough, dubbed Ruffian Dick by his pals. He was without a doubt a terrible fighter and fought in single combat more enemies than perhaps any man of his time. A man of peculiar temper too and strong individuality with a wholesome contempt for Mrs. Grundy in all her ways. But his great distinguishing feature was his courage. No braver man than Ruffian Dick ever lived. His daring was that of that romantic order which revels in danger for danger's sake. No crisis, however appalling, could shake his splendid nerve. He was as cool when his life hung on a hair's breadth as when he sat smoking in his own snuggery. I know of nothing in the annals of adventure to surpass his memorable journey to Mecca with the Mohammedan pilgrims. None but a follower of the true prophet had ever penetrated the shrine where the coffin of Muhammad swings between earth and heaven. No eyes but those of the faithful were permitted to gaze upon that holy of holies. Certain and speedy death awaited any infidel who should profane with his footsteps those sacred precincts and or to seek to pry into those hidden mysteries. There were secret passwords among the pilgrims by which they could detect at once anyone who was not of the true faith, and, detect, and detection meant instant death at the hands of the enraged fanatics. Yet all these difficulties and dangers, apparently insurmountable, did not deter Ruffian Dick from undertaking the perilous enterprise. He went through a long course of preparation, studied all the minute ways of the Arabs. He already spoke their language like a native, professed the Mohammedan religion, acquired the secret passwords, and then boldly joined the great annual procession of pilgrims to the shrine of the prophet. How perfect his disguise was, the following anecdote will show. On his return from the pilgrimage to Mecca, his leave had expired, and he had to return to India at once without time to rig himself out with a fresh outfit. One evening, a party of officers were lounging outside Shepherd's Hotel at Cairo. As they sat talking and smoking, there passed repeatedly in front of them an Arab in his loose, flowing robes, with head proudly erect, and the peculiar swinging stride of those sons of the desert. As he strode backwards and forwards, he drew nearer and nearer to the little knot of officers, till at last, as he swept by, the flying folds of his burnous brushed against one of the officers. Damn that N-word's impudence, said the officer. If he does that again, I'll kick him. To his surprise, the dignified Arab suddenly halted, wheeled around, and exclaimed, quote, Well, damn it, Hawkins, that's a nice way to welcome a fellow after two years' absence, unquote. By God, it's Ruffian Dick, cried Hawkins. And Ruffian Dick it was, but utterly transformed out of all resemblance to a European. His complexion was burned by the sun to a deep umber tint, and his cast of features was more oriental than English, so that in the robes of an Arab he might well pass for one of that nomad race. Here is the second from Allen's Indian Mail. The late Sir Richard Burton to the editor of the Times, India. Sir, unlike your correspondent, Mr. Levick of Suez, questioning Sir Richard Richard's visit to Medina in 1853, I merely want to say that in Sir Richard, the scientific world has lost a bright star. In ling linguistic attainments, there was not his equal in the world. He could not only speak the languages, but act so well that his most intimate friends were often deceived. I was often witness to this feat of his while at Karachi in 1847, as I happened to be employed under Dr. Stocks, botanist in Sindh, as his botanical draftsman. Sir Richard, then a lieutenant, and the doctor occupied the same bungalow. I had necessarily to work in the hall and consequently had the opportunity of seeing and admiring his ways. He was on special duty, which in his case meant to perfect himself for some political duty by mastering the languages of the country. 
When I knew him, he was a master of half a dozen languages, which he wrote and spoke fluently. That is so fluently that a stranger who did not see him and heard him speaking would fancy he, he heard a native. His domestic servants were a Portuguese with whom he spoke Portuguese and Goanese, an African, a Persian, and a Sindhi or Belochi. He spoke their mother tongue to Sir Richard as he, he was engaged in his studies with Moonshees, who relieved every other two hours from 10 to 4 daily. The Moonshees would read an hour and converse the next. It was a treat to hear Sir Richard talk. One would scarcely be able to distinguish the Englishman from a Persian, Arabian, or Sindian. His habits at home were perfectly Persian or Arabic. His hair was dressed a la Persian, long and shaved from the forehead to the top of the head. His eyes, by some means or other he employed, resembled Persian or Arabian. He used the Turkish bath and wore a cowl. When he went out for a ride, he used a wig and goggles. His complexion was also thorough Persian, so that nature evidently intended him for the work he afterwards so successfully performed, namely visiting the shrine of the prophet Muhammad, a work very few would have undertaken unless he was a complete master of himself. I was a witness to his first essay in disguising himself as a poor Persian and taking in his friend Munshi Ali Akbar, the father of Mirza Hussein, solicitor of the city. The Munshi was seated one evening in an open space in front of his bungalow in the town of Karachi, with a lot of his friends enjoying the evening breeze and chatting away as Persians are wont to do. Sir Richard, disguised as a Persian traveler, approached them and after the usual compliments inquired for the rest house and as a matter of course gave a long rigmarole account of his travels and of the people of the Munshi knew and thus it excited his curiosity and got him into conversation. And when he thought he acted his part to perfection, bid him the time and left him, but did not go far when he called out to the Munshi in English if he did not know him. The Munshi was completely taken aback. He did not know where the voice his friend Burton's came from till he was addressed again, and a recognition took place to the great astonishment of the Munshi and his friends. Such a jovial companion Sir Richard was that his bungalow was the resort of the learned men of the place, amongst whom I noticed Major and afterwards General Walter Scott, Lieutenant and now General Alfred DeLisle, Lieutenant Edward Danzy of Moulton Notoriety, Dr. Stocks, and many others, but who, with the exception of General DeLisle, are all gone to their home above, where Sir Richard has now followed. May their souls rest in peace. Sometime or other, Lady Burton may write a memoir of Sir Richard's life, and a slight incident, as the one I have related, may be of use to her. And if you think as I do, and consider it worth inserting in a quarter of your paper, I shall be very much obliged to you if you will do so. Yours, etc. Walter Abraham, October 31st, 1891. On the return journey from Mecca, when Richard could secure any privacy, he composed the most exquisite gem of Oriental poetry that I've ever heard or imagined, nor do I believe it has its equal, either from the pen of Hafiz, Saadi, Shakespeare, Milton Swinburne, or any other. It is quite unique. It is called the Kazida, or the Lay of the Higher Law, by Haji Abu el-Yazidi. It will ride over the heads of most. It will displease many. It will appeal to all the large hearts and large brains for its depth, height, breadth, for its heart, nobility, its pathos, its melancholy, its despair. It is the very perfection of romance. It seems to the cry of a soul wandering through space, looking for what it does not find. I have read it many times during my married life, and never without bitter tears. And when I read it now, it affects me still more. He used to take it away from me. It oppressed me so. I give you the poem here in full. It reminds me more than anything of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam, the astronomer-poet of Khorasan known as the Tentmaker, written in the 11th century, which poem was made known by 
Mr. Edward Fitzgerald in 1861 to Richard Burton, to Swinburne, and to Dante Rossetti. Richard at once claimed him as a brother Sufi and said that all his allusions are purely typical and particularly in the second verse. Yet the Kazidah was written in 1853. The Rubaiyat did not, he did not know till eight years later. I shall reproduce the Kazidah in its entirety with its 15 pages of copious annotations in the uniform library of Richard's works, which I am editing. I give the annotations in the appendix. It is a poem of extraordinary power on the nature and destiny of man, anti-Christian and pantheistic. So much wealth of Oriental learning has rarely been compressed into so small a compass. So it's very long. I'm going to skip that and just kind of finish out this chapter. The chapter. So the, the totality of this Kazi does in this book, if you want to go back and read it. Richard ideas, Richard's idea was that every man, by doing all the good he could in this life, always working for others, for the human race, always acting excelsior, should leave a track of light behind him on this world as he passes through. His idea of God was so immeasurably grander than anything people are usually taught to think about God. It always seemed to him that we dwindled God down to our own mean imaginations that we made something like ourselves, only bigger and far crueler. There is some truth in this. We are always talking about God, just as if we understood him. His idea of a divine being was so infinite, so great, that to pray to him was an impertinence, that it was monstrous that we should expect him to alter one of his decrees, because we prayed for it, that he was a God of big universal love, but so far off as to be far above anything we can understand. These were the utmost extent of his own agnostic fits. He was always in one of the two extremes, meaning all or nothing. It is what we Catholics call resisting of divine grace. It is what agnostics would call resisting a temptation, or the correct shibboleth, I believe is, upholding his integrity, i.e. disbelieving in God and another world, which he never did at any time in his life. <laughs>